from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Here, I, as I was reading up on this exhibit, I read for the first time in my life, I believe, that the Nubians built more pyramids than the Egyptians did. And, and that seems like something that we don't talk about today. Um, why do you think they've gotten such short shrift? Does it all go back to the lack of the written record of what they were up to? I think that's a big part of it. I think I think the prejudices of the people who initially published these sites are another part. It's also the fact that Egypt was a place where people from Europe and America traveled in the 19th century mm-hmm. and early 20th century as part of the grand tour. So almost nobody went to Sudan. So there weren't you know, people sending back postcards of Sudanese pyramids. I'm Sarah Fetsky. Yesterday, the St. Louis Art Museum opened its newest exhibit. It's a display of ancient African art with works spanning numerous contemporary national borders and 2,000 years of history. The exhibit is called Nubia, Treasures of Ancient Africa, and it comes here from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. That museum mounted a slightly bigger version of this exhibition in 2019 and 2020. And joining us today to tell us more is Denise Doxy. She is the curator of ancient Egyptian, Nubian, and Near Eastern art at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Denise, welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So, Denise, when we talk about Nubia, what do we mean by that? Well, Nubia is a title, uh, the name that's used primarily by archaeologists today, because there never was a Nubia in antiquity. Mm-hmm. In antiquity, it was called Kush. And it spans the southernmost part of Egypt today and the northern part of Sudan. So basically from about Aswan in the north to Khartoum in the south. But this exhibition includes exclusively material from what is today Sudan. Okay. So the Nubians, they seem to have had a really complicated relationship with the people living in in northern Egypt, what we would call today the Egyptians. Um, They were neighbors. They were enemies. They seem to have really influenced each other back and forth. How would you characterize that relationship? I think you've done an excellent job yourself because they're they're next-door neighbors, and they're vying for some of the same commodities and the same trade works, and consequently, they're, they're frenemies in a way. They, they get along wonderfully at times, but they would be very quick to take advantage of the other. Whenever one of the two societies goes into a period of uh, a weakening, the other will take advantage. So they took turns. The border moved frequently. But they were distinct groups. They Were they different racially, different languages, or, or was it more that it was more fluid than that? Um, in some ways, it's more fluid than that. They spoke different languages. And but whether they were different races, I don't really think you can say that they are because I mean genetically there's no difference. Mm. Um, probably you know northern Egyptians looked quite different than southern Egyptians, and southern Egyptians looked different from Nubians. But the difference between a southern Egyptian and a Nubian might not have been very great at all. They Nubians. Uh, one of the interesting things about the Nubians, and one of the things that makes it difficult to. Um, launch an exhibition like this is that for much of their history, although they had a distinct language, they didn't leave any written records. Hmm. So we only get the Egyptian viewpoint, which is, of course, very pro-Egyptian and anti-Nubian. Yeah, I imagine that probably shaped our understanding of this in that um, they didn't get to tell their own version of this story. No, that's definitely true. And it's exacerbated by the fact that the early Egyptologists who first excavated in Sudan, including our own George Andrew Reisner, were 
coming from a background where they had been reading these Egyptian texts and took them at face value. And many of them were also bringing in their own, you know, racial biases, you know, late 19th and early 20th century prejudices that dovetailed nicely with what the Egyptians were saying. So they didn't question that. They, to, to read early archaeologists, it sounds as if Nubia is a backwater compared to Egypt, when in fact that's not at all the case. Hmm. So I feel like Nubia seems to get short shrift here. I, as I was reading up on this exhibit, I read for the first time in my life, I believe, that the Nubians built more pyramids than the Egyptians did. And, and that seems like something that we don't talk about today. Um, why do you think they've gotten such short shrift? Does it all go back to the lack of the written record of what they were up to? I think that's a big part of it. I think I think the prejudices of the people who initially published these sites are another part. It's also the fact that Egypt was a place where people from Europe and America traveled in the 19th century mm-hmm. and early 20th century as part of the Grand Tour. So almost nobody went to Sudan. So there weren't you know, people sending back postcards of Sudanese pyramids. Mm-hmm. So how is it then that your museum, this is the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, how did you end up with such a big collection of art from this area? It's completely due to our excavations. Um, the MSA um, at Harvard University had a joint expedition to both Egypt and Sudan um, for, for 37 years in the first half of the 20th century. And at that point, the policies on both governments were to share a portion of any excavated finds with the institution that paid for the excavations. So they were trying to prevent looting, so they were trying to encourage scientific excavation. So we were given a very generous uh, share of the objects that we excavated. So, I mean, we have 25,000 objects in our Nubian collection based almost entirely from the excavations. Hmm. So 25,000 objects total, that had to be distilled down for this show. I understand it has several thousand pieces, but not of that magnitude. Um, What kind of art is being showcased in this show that's now open at the St. Louis Art Museum? Well, when I say 25,000 objects, when you have an an archaeologically excavated collection, you have a lot of pot shards and broken Mm. beads and things that are of great scientific interest to scholars, but the public is probably never going to see. So we picked the objects that were, uh, you know, the the highlights of the collection uh, or highlights that were able to travel. And we also decided to limit it from to 2,000 years, which is a lot, but when we actually have 5,000 years worth of material, we wanted to bring it into sharper focus. So we didn't do the very, very early Neolithic material, for example. So, so this is the later part of your collection. How, how far does this take it in this 2,000-year sample you have? It's actually, it's about 1,700, actually, it's a little bit earlier, in the 1,800 B.C. up until about the mid-4th century A.D., Okay. So, so that's still, quite a long time still a pretty broad swath of time there. Um, so tell us, what kind of art were the Nubians making um, during those years? They made uh, exquisite jewelry throughout their history. Mm-hmm. Um, in the early phases, the, the culture, which is the first part of the exhibition, they weren't really doing three-dimensional sculpture yet, but they were doing uh, fabulous pottery, mm-hmm. you know, some of the finest pottery you'll ever see, um, as well as jewelry, uh, architectural inlays and reliefs. Um, in the Napoleon period, the, 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 which is the bulk of the exhibition, which goes from about seven, 8th century B.C. up until about the 4th century B.C., uh, they were producing uh, you know, massive temples and pyramids and three-dimensional sculptures on a colossal scale. 
again, magnificent jewelry, some really beautiful stone vessels, and other you know, de- decorative art items, as well as these funerary figurines, which we call Schwab tees. And there's a whole gallery full of those. Hmm. And these are, uh, people may be familiar with these from looking at Egyptian art. I understand they have some some similarities to the funeral figurines in that culture. Yes. The Napatan period in general, because Egypt had previously been in control of most of Nubia, and then Nubia conquered Egypt, there were a great deal of entanglement and interconnection and shared ideas and intermarriage. So the Napatan art, particularly the early Napatan art, in many cases, looks a lot like Egyptian art. Hmm. If you like Egyptian art, you will like Napoleon art because there's, there's, there. People have trouble telling them apart. In fact, when we had the exhibit in Boston, we had one person complain that we were showing Nubian, Egyptian art and claiming it was Nubian. Um, <laughs> so if people are in coming the, into this with some familiarity with Egyptian <laughs> art. They may, they may, uh, this may really be in their wheelhouse. Yes, people will will, will see um, objects that look very Egyptian, but there's also. Uh, objects that are completely nothing like you would see in Egypt. Hmm. Uh, Give me an example of that. What's something that that really moves it far from this framework that we might have of of Egyptology? Well, with the lack of inscriptions, we have gods and images of gods and goddesses, uh, or what are most likely divine animals that we can't identify because we don't have text to see who they are. But some really fantastic creatures, you know, combine, combining uh, wings of a a bird with the head of a serpent and the body of a human. I mean, there's, there's very um, interesting combinations of creatures. That, um, and in the, particularly in the Meriwetic period, which is still the end of the exhibition, uh, there, Egypt at that point was under the Greeks and then the Romans. So there's a lot more uh, it's sort of cosmopolitan art that's borrowing, you know, taking from... You know, Central Africa and Western Africa, and also Egypt, and also Greece and Rome, and so it's a, a kind of a cosmopolitan combination of motifs that suddenly appears. Hmm. We're talking today to Denise Doxy. She's the curator of ancient Egyptian, Nubian, and Near Eastern art at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Um, the show that is now at the St. Louis Art Museum, it opened yesterday, um, uh, takes its cue from one that was in Boston just a couple years ago and has a number of items from that collection. Um, and you had mentioned this Maroe, um, which was where the, this was sort of the final stage of, of Nubian art that is is part of this show. Um, and you mentioned the Romans were there. The Greeks were there. My understanding is that the Romans failed to actually conquer this area. How were they able to hold them at bay when pretty much everybody else in the world seems to have fallen to the Romans at that point? Well, interestingly, they initially did go to war with the Meroitic Nubians. And this is under Augustus. But uh, Meroe at that point was ruled by a woman, a ruling queen, which is something we don't see very often in Egypt, but is more common in Nubia. Um, And for whatever reason, they ended up signing a peace treaty. And then they became kind of friends and trade partners. Hmm. So it, we don't know exactly what happened, whether the Romans just kind of ran out of steam or whether, uh, I like to say, you know, Augustus Caesar may conquer the known world, but he can't get past an African woman. <laughs> That's great. I love that. <laughs> so thinking about these borders today and thinking about how Europeans have made their way to Africa, in many cases took what they want and, and left, how does Sudan feel today about the treasures that are being showcased in this exhibit and, and that you have at your museum in Boston? Sudan has actually been very uh, open and uh, 
friendly about it. In fact, when we had the show in Boston, well, we had brought in members of the, Boston has a large Sudanese expat community, hmm. many of whom identify as Nubians still. And so we brought them in a few times, and then they in turn told their friends, and we ended up with um, Sudanese visitors coming from all over the country. And we even, we even made the news in Sudan, and one of the uh, officials in their um, National Corporation for Museums and Antiquities uh, sent, sent us congratu- congratulatory emails. So there was no um, sense that, I mean, the, the, obviously the, the Bostonian Sudanese like having it in Boston, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the you know, archaeological uh, institutions and museums in Sudan uh, don't seem to have any objection. Hmm. It's interesting because there have been so many controversies over what seem like very similar types of exhibits that, that people in the countries, you know, they felt like they were looted. Was this handled in a different way um, where the Sudanese ended up having a, a better feeling about it? I think part of it is the fact that at the time of these excavations, they were sanctioned by the government, even though the government was actually, in fact, um, under British control. Uh, but it wasn't the same as, say, just going in and taking whatever you wanted. Mm-hmm. They were trying to encourage archaeological excavations at the time. So, you know, there were, everything was done by the book as it was done. It wouldn't be done that way today, obviously. But um, I think the other part of it is that um, the um, Sudanese, for a long time, they, they haven't been a tourist destination like Egypt. For mm-hmm. And they would like to, you know, help build up that part of their economy. So I think having the uh, visibility of ancient Nubia increased is something that they appreciate. Hmm. Well, we hope people will come check this out. It's at the St. Louis Art Museum. It's open now through August 22nd. Uh, Denise, if people go take a look at this, what's one piece that you would recommend? This is one thing you need to make sure you you notice. Uh, Well, one thing that I will definitely mention, because it's easy to miss, and it's really exquisite, is the piece that's actually on the banner on the front of the building, Hmm. which is a piece of jewelry. It's a, it's a crystal orb with a, a gold head of a goddess on top. And it's only about an inch tall, so it's very easy to, to miss. So I think in general, close looking, there's a lot of very tiny but very beautiful objects in this that I think will really reward close looking. It's a great recommendation. And in our final minute here, I noticed that you've said this is a family-friendly exhibit. Um, how so? Well, I, mean, I can assess that I myself am an animal lover. But because animals play this in all ancient cultures, animals play a huge role, both economically and religiously. But there's all sorts of different animals, both real animals, recognizable cats, and so on. But also these fantastic creatures with, you know, hippos with wings and things like that. That I just I can see if you know, you're with a, a family with young kids, and the kids aren't necessarily reading the labels and mm-hmm. learning about the relationships between Egypt and Nubia. They might be really enjoying the animals just for their own sake. I could easily say a scavenger hunt, see how many rams you can find. And they, you know, I think, certainly in Boston, it was it was really well received by families with little kids. Hmm. Well, that is great to hear. I, I'm going to plan a scavenger hunt of my own as I check out <laughs> this exhibit. So, Denise Doxy, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing this history. Thank you. It's my pleasure. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? 
suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.